How do you force a cultural shift in an institution to make the defensive mindset paramount and get back to the principles of the sector and the founding principles of finance, which were trust and confidence in the safety and soundness of one's assets? Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CIO Exchange podcast. I'm Ian Porter de Leon. As a part of our effort to share other curated podcasts from the VMware family of tech leader-focused shows, because the best way to find new podcasts is on a podcast you already listen to, I want to quickly introduce you to this show, Don't Break the Bank, with Matthew O'Neill and Brian Hayes, who come from the office of the CTO and the financial services industry team. The name Don't Break the Bank comes from their focus on the financial services sector and the unique challenges that this industry faces. You can subscribe to Don't Break the Bank wherever you find your podcasts. This episode covers how the financial services sector is one of the most secure in the world. It's also one of the most targeted by sophisticated cyber criminals. In this show, one of the world's leading cybersecurity experts, Tom Kellerman, head of cybersecurity strategy at VMware, talks with Matthew and Brian about how the threat has gone from bank heist to hostage situation and what financial service providers can do to combat it. Hello, and welcome to our financial services podcast series, Don't Break the Bank, Run It and Change It. I'm Matthew O'Neill, and together with my co-host, Brian Hayes, we've both worked for over 30 years in banking and banking IT. This is a podcast for curious minds in the financial services industry. The purpose of our podcast is to explore some topics and questions which we didn't even know were questions when we were working on the other side. I'm really happy today to say that uh, Matthew and I will be talking to Tom Kellerman on a topic that's never going to be far off of the top three things on anyone's radar, but particularly within financial services and particularly with the clients that we're talking to and the CIOs that we're talking to. And that topic is all around security and cybersecurity. And, and Tom's going to bring to the table his wealth of knowledge and understanding and give us some insights into the challenges that the financial services industry faces at the moment. So thank you, Tom, for, for being here today. And could you introduce yourself, please? Thank you for having me. Yes, my name is Tom Kellerman. I'm the head of cybersecurity strategy for VMware Carbon Black, and I have tremendous passion for the state of security of the financial sector and for an understanding of the adversaries that face it. Okay, so I think today's going to be the frightening episode, Brian. We're going to learn some things today that we wish we'd never learned. So, Tom, look, I'd assert that perhaps other than military and security services, financial services has probably invested the most in security technology and has got some of the best capabilities in the world. And I think that comes about because, after all, you know, money can easily be moved. It can be, you know, it's, it's a virtual thing and therefore a very worthwhile target. Um, what's your perspective on the FS sector relating to, to cybersecurity? The financial sector is the most secure outside of the defense community. Uh, that being said, they are being targeted and hunted by the most sophisticated cyber criminal crews and nation states of the world. These criminals and these spies have recognized not only the weaknesses and the architectures of the financial sector security posture, but they understand the interdependencies that exist throughout the sector and ways in which you can leapfrog boundaries and penetrate those environments. So the leapfrogging boundaries thing, it kind of makes me think back 15, 20 years ago, we were all doing very different things. And, and at the time, the advice from the, the network providers is, is try and be as flat and open as you can in your network. And I was reading something the other day about that actually those flat and open networks now providing a great way to, to leapfrog 
from something like a CCTV camera or a building management system and into into systems and, and then beyond. Is that a real thing or is that kind of a James Bond science fiction kind of thing? I wish it was a James Bond science fiction kind of thing, but it is a very real thing. Operational technology is being exploited. That's typically because there's a lack of communication and strategy as it relates to the head of physical security or facility security and the head of cybersecurity. Uh, Many folks that run facility security, the chief security officers, will deploy new technologies and, and new ways in which to monitor those facilities to prevent a kinetic event from occurring. And they will immediately integrate those things with the primary network, thus creating a greater attack surface and a way in which an adversary could hack the CCTV systems to bypass the perimeter defenses of the financial sector's institution itself. Previously, we we hadn't quite used those terms to describe the villains that were trying to access our environments. But, you know, these are adversaries or geopolitical sponsored events or or sponsored groups. can you give us a flavour of the sort of sophistication that we're seeing and what are kind of like the real threats that the big banks are having to deal with? Yes. So rogue nation states are offsetting economic sanctions by targeting the Western financial sector. That's been going on for a while, but they've also they're leveraging new campaigns of attack against the sector that go beyond merely the transfer of funds via SWIFT, etc., They have full recognition and appreciation of how valuable non-public market information is, as well as understanding what positions portfolio managers might take in a given day and being able to digitally front run them. In addition to that, you have the very sophisticated and very organized cyber criminal syndicates of Eastern Europe and Brazil who have developed custom malware and who have successfully targeted many financial institutions by bypassing the network defenses they have in place. Particularly in this era of COVID where telework abounds, it's very easy to target senior executives as they work from home and use the VPN tunnel to tunnel past the perimeter defenses that are in place and then uh, deploy custom-made malware or remote access Trojans backdoors in those systems so that you can maintain omniscience and effectuate financial crimes. Okay, so naively then, does that mean you have to have admin rights in order to become a victim of these things? Or is it as simple as clicking on a link in an attachment? Well, most cyber criminals understand how to escalate privileges on a box by using a local exploit to become an administrator on a device. But many senior executives and financial institutions do not have limited access or limited privileges. And thus, when they are compromised and when their endpoint is compromised, uh, you can essentially piggyback and laterally move through those ecosystems. This is why micro-segmentation and just-in-time administration are fundamental tenets of a modern cybersecurity strategy. Brian will tell you, I often have to ask the naive questions to to try to get to these things. So apologies if it's oversimplified that it's all about email attachments. That's a very good point you're raising, though, if if I may. Spear phishing is not the primary cause of breaches in the financial sector. You have all nuanced types of attacks now. A lot of exploitation of existing OS vulnerabilities. You have application attacks. You have this construct of island hopping, which abounds where you target uh, trusted systems to, to leapfrog into other systems because of the implicit trust that exists there. And then finally, you have new forms of attack against mobile devices, including smishing, uh, smishing being SMS-based phishing, and they can be leveraged to, to effectuate a point of presence on a high-profile user. 
And that's actually that's that is interesting because I think when when you think of the smishing attacks, so in fact, every time I get one of these, I put a tweet up about it because hopefully it's all the ones that I get rather than just the ones I spot. So I, I always put that up there to sort of say, oh yeah, this looks real. I think I should click on this. But clearly, people are doing this, and there is a level of success here. And there's a lot of thought about these sorts of phishing attacks or, or smishing attacks or anything else, ishing attacks, tend to impact only one individual who kind of gets taken along or has their bank balance emptied. But as, you, as you're saying, if the criminals are targeting administrators or targeting someone inside of the firewall or inside of the perimeter and then doing other things like elevating privilege and going off and doing an untold damage, then, then it's a much different issue than I need to warn my parents not to click on that link. It is a much different issue. And that's why in, a, in the third annual Modern Bank Heist Report, which I author, we note the shift from the bank heist to a hostage situation. Significant cyber criminal syndicates and cyber spies appreciate the brand of the institution, the trust and confidence that's been placed in the, in the institution for years, if not centuries in many cases, and thus they appreciate that you must commandeer the digital transformation efforts of that institution and use the digital transformation, whether it be the new mobile app, the website, the network itself, or even the email server to attack the customers, the shareholders, and the board members in turn. The other one I keep hearing about, and and you know, and I, and I don't know whether that it's relevant for the conversation today, but is the level of organisation behind attacking banks and the level of creativity that goes into the malware or to the software or into into what's being done. I kind of liken it to years and years ago. If if you went in, went into attack a bank, you would have to kind of go in with people with with weapons, threaten staff, and there was a ton of risk for everybody. And now with cybercrime, it's all done thousands of miles away without actually seeing it taking place. So what measures should people be thinking about to kind of go beyond just closing the front door? That's a very important point to be made here. Number one, they need to ensure that when they close the bank for the day that no one's in the vault and they need to proactively conduct cyber threat hunting on a regular basis, a weekly basis at a minimum, across their information supply chain and throughout their networks. Number two, they need to improve visibility on the endpoints of these telework population as well as their supply chain and deploying next-gen AV with EDR capability and disrupt active campaigns. Number three, they should appreciate the just-in-time administration is fundamental in today's world, that no one should have administrative privileges in perpetuity, and that administrative rights should be granted specific to task and time. And number four, they need to embrace the construct of micro-segmentation to limit lateral movement, east-west traffic per se, of anyone who does successfully bypass their security posture, as they will, because 100% prevention is not possible when you're being targeted by nation states and the very, very sophisticated uh, cyber criminal crews of Eastern Europe. Finally, application control is of paramount importance in today's world, particularly when we're seeing a dramatic increase of application attacks. It's the number two attack vector that is employed across the globe to get into infrastructure, only following OS vulnerabilities and the exploitation of those. Okay, my jaws dropped. 
So what's clearly enlightening is the scale and complexity, the, the level of organisation around this. What I'm interested in is what's your observation of how the regulators are educating themselves, becoming more aware to drive greater prevention and, and greater capabilities from the financial services organisations, the banks themselves. What's your view from, on the regulators and their awareness? It depends on the regulator. For example, the Monetary Authority of Singapore is probably the most proactive regulatory regime in the world. You have European banks, obviously, that have to be compliant with the technology risk management guidelines of MAS, but they don't necessarily harmonize their compliance across their infrastructure in Europe. Harmonization of proactive regulation is something that I hope the international regulatory community will get to. I do think that there's some proactive steps that regulators should embark upon that are not draconian, that are sensible, that would be in the best interest of maintaining safety and soundness in the sector as a whole and inhibiting a systemic risk from occurring via cyber. We have to appreciate the World Economic Forum report that came out three weeks ago that noted that the third largest economy in the world by next year will be the dark web economy of scale, which is literally pilfering the financial sector in order to become that size. And so in so much, I think that if the regulators demanded that chief information security officers be elevated in the governance structure of the financial institution, so you have that defensive mindset at the top, that would be proactive. I also think that if regulators mandated proactive cyber threat hunting, much like they do penetration testing, but threat hunting itself, we would be safer as citizens of the West. And then finally, I think the integration of security controls. And frankly, most financial institutions are using a dozen or more security products. They have to man each of those products or they have to do it in a desperate fashion because of telework and COVID. At a minimum, a functional financial institution must be able to say, all of my security controls have been integrated. I can use the telemetry and all my control points as a force function to improve security. And I have armed up uh, my IT team to become security capable through that process, intrinsically so, to suppress intrusions. So in some cases, the regulators have this compliance or senior managers regime where they have the top management of the banks worrying about the conduct and competence of their organisations. What's your take then on the level of complexity? Is this just a problem that's going to happen? Is it possible to be that competent with the whole thing? Or is there an approach that's different that we're advocating should be taken? There is a different approach. And look, of all the esteemed CIOs who are listening to this podcast, not all of you will think about defensive posture and the defensive mindset on a regular basis. Not all of us, when we watch football, appreciate the defensive side of the ball. How do you force a cultural shift in an institution to make the defensive mindset paramount and get back to the principles of the sector and the founding principles of finance, which were trust and confidence in the safety and soundness of one's assets? And I think that the begins and ends with the board and the CEO should be briefed on cybersecurity on a monthly basis. The chief information security officer should have separate budget and separate authorities and should have the capacity to slow or stop a technological initiative to modernize IT should it pose a greater security risk than potential benefit. And then finally, we have to get beyond plausible deniability. So we have to proactively conduct cyber threat hunting because we are being hunted. And they may already have a backdoor in our infrastructure. 
And many times the financial crimes that are being manifested are not merely specific to wire transfer fraud. And so the worst case scenario has changed because you don't want your brand of your financial institution to be tarnished because your network infrastructure, your, your mobile app, your digital transformation itself is now attacking your customers and your shareholders. So I, I think some others that would be listening to this might say that they believe the CISO has most of that power already and is kind of in a denying progress function rather than an enabling innovation function. How do you get that balance? Obviously, no one wants to do the wrong thing, but at the same time, there's a huge push to be updating, to be modern, to deliver service without being in a function that only is perceived as saying no all the time. That's a very good point. It really depends. You have very proactive CISOs that appreciate the, the need for resiliency and accessibility and modernization that is occurring across the financial sector. But that being said, ground truth is imperative. If your cyber threat hunting team discerns that there is a true threat in your infrastructure, that should become the number one priority to mitigate for both IT and SecOps. It's an all hands on deck phenomenon that we are facing right now as we're dealing with an unprecedented cyber crime wave. And so when you think about long term, it's not about security, it's about sustainable digital transformation. Sustainable digital transformation can only occur when security is built in, not bolted on. And so hopefully the CISO themselves is an effective communicator and translator of that risk. Applications, because m most organizations now are flipping to an application-led transformation. Clearly, the apps are the way forward. They've done lots of e economic transformations with their infrastructure to get faster and cheaper and drive automation. But now we're at the top end of the stack driving applications. So I'd be very interested if you've got a view on, on the application perspective. Yeah, I'm a firm believer in DevSecOps. In fact, I think it should be called SecDevOps as it relates to a process. No surprise. In, 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 in addition to that, the OWASP top 20 attacks are still incredibly viable to bypass and undermine the integrity of applications. So your app should be tested for the OWASP top 20 attacks um, before and after production. In addition, I think application control or the capacity to identify behavioral anomalies that occur in the app due to adversaries conducting what's called process hollowing, which is when they turn the app on its mission and on its function is fundamental. And then lastly, yeah, limiting privileges for those administrators who have access to those apps will be of paramount importance. That limiting of privilege thing, I thought that was advice like 15, 20 years ago. And I was reading one of the recent reports on one of the, the higher profile breaches, and it read like every employee had admin rights in a financial services firm. From the advising you're doing, going around talking with folks, is that really the case or is this just like one anomaly? It's not really the case, but everyone in IT has admin privileges. And why does everyone in IT have admin privileges? And how do you bestow admin privileges? And when was the last time you sat down with a senior executive in your institution and told them they should not have admin privileges? They shouldn't because they are more heavily targeted and an adversary can then use them to pivot and leapfrog into the infrastructure. And frankly, it should be about just-in-time administration. You're going to com complete this task in the next two hours, then you should have admin privileges and then they should be revoked just in case, because frankly, it's about having too many open doors inside the bank. There's too many open doors that have access to the vault when everyone has admin privileges. Uh, there was a really interesting quote about security 
Or an anecdotal quote to just reflect on what Tom said. And someone said, well, what's the point of putting the bolts on the street door? What's the point of locking the back door? What's the point of shutting all the windows if you leave all the top of the house open? If you leave all the windows open and go out and think people can't climb up on the outside? What we're seeing and what we're getting a sense of is that wherever there's an opportunity to get in, they'll get in. And they'll stay in. And they will misuse that infrastructure. They'll turn it into a home invasion. That's what's tragic about the world we live in, because pr- prosecution rates for cyber criminals globally are still less than 3%. Wow. If the risk is 3%, that means you have a 97% success rate. You're going to think of that route rather than the other one, right? Yep. The risk reward is far too great. Even in the US, if you look at a traditional bank heist, and I say this as an advisory board member for the US Secret Service, if you look at the traditional bank heist, You'll see a typical bank that's robbed physically by someone with a gun loses about six to $8,000 from the teller. And there's a 90, 98, 99% chance that the person who robbed the bank will get caught. If you think about in cyberspace, the average bank heist is somewhere around six to seven million. And that prosecution rates are still less than 3%. I think there's this presumption that people get in and get out. They take what they can and leave. And I think there's there has to be a greater awareness starting to develop that people get in and stay in and you're, you don't even know they're there. And they just wait for the opportunity and they sell off the asset. And that asset could be your data, it could be your client data, but it's a very different proposition in terms of theft. Yes, and this is going to be the year, I guarantee you, that you will see a major financial institution being sued by another financial institution because that institution was attacking the victim institution with cyber attacks, unbeknownst to them, but their infrastructure was being used to island hop and target another institution. And this is widespread in fintech, mind you. Hackers fully appreciate that fintech is the future, and they fully appreciate the dependency on APIs that exist to obviously utilize the future. And that being said, is they they corrupt and or target those APIs to bypass the security mechanisms and to use that trusted infrastructure to target their constituents. I feel myself pausing a lot between each of these as it sinks in what's just being said. <laughs> it's the reality. It's the, the reality of the situation that we, we now live in. Tom, I'm, I'm going to ask you, we're in that period, which is most organizations have rallied very well and, and, and dealt with COVID and the implications of, of COVID. What have you seen in terms of security trends over that period, over, over the last three or four months that you would say people are particularly trying to exploit the time that we're in at the moment? Yes. Unfortunately, according to VMware Carbon Black data, we've seen a 238% increase in cyber attacks. In tandem with major news events and news cycles, you're seeing a dramatic increase of targeting of teleworkers. There was a warning that was put out by the U.S. Secret Service that does all financial crime investigation, mind you, in the U.S., that MSPs, managed service providers, are being targeted to be conducting leapfrogging into major sectors. And that makes sense because people are much more dependent on MSPs, especially during this massive shift that is occurring. There's a dramatic increase of application attacks, island hopping. And then most nefariously, there's been a spike in destructive attacks. More often than not, the adversaries are willing to destroy infrastructure. And this is really a question for everyone who's listening. Is that due to geopolitical tension or is that due to counter-incident response? How dare you react to me as I'm in your infrastructure? I own this now. I'm going to set it on fire. I don't have the answer. 
Is there any evidence that organised crime is fighting organised crime for who actually owns the exploit or owns that exploited customer? I mean, is it, is it getting that bad? <laughs> I didn't want to bring this up, but I will say it for the record. What's gotten bad is that there's such an economy of scale of the dark web and provisioning of custom malware that the most elite cyber criminals in the world don't actually hack full time. They sell capabilities to others because not only do they make money by selling the capability, but they make money because they have remote access to wherever that weapon is deployed. And so you're basically seeding the environment for them. And this has been compounded by the discoveries by uh, Greg Foss over here at VMware Carbon Black, one of our most prolific threat researchers and cybersecurity strategists. He noted the discovery of numerous access mining forums. What that means is a hacker will hack a financial institution and they will discern that it is this German institution X and it's very much a critical infrastructure. And I have a remote access Trojan inside of the senior executives, as well as the person that runs all wire transfers. Who wants access to this? I will sell access to this machine or to this infrastructure for a limited time. And then you will give me 30% of the proceeds associated with your cybercrime. This is actually happening. There are numerous forums out there because of the nature in which so much of our infrastructure has been colonized and or botted in the past, and we don't know about it because we don't have the visibility. Now you have hackers taking it one step up and saying, well, what is this thing? What does it talk to? What could be used for? I don't have the time to use it, but does anyone else want to use it for a fee? I wish I hadn't asked that question. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. That's uh, that's made me sit back and think, to be quite honest in terms of the ramifications of that. What's the story on ransomware then? Ransomware is the poor man's malware. It's the poor man's cyber crime kit, which is why most of the elite cyber criminal crews out there produce ransomware deploying platforms that are leased by traditional criminals and street criminals who don't have the technical capacity to get in the ransomware game. However, ransomware is evolving It has leveraged new capabilities that allow it to conduct defensive evasion and obfuscation. Not all ransomware is equal in terms of its capability set. The ransomware game itself has shifted to not just conducting ransom, but then subsequent coercion and extortion by actually capturing the most sensitive files on those systems and threatening to leak those files. And they're doing this in Europe, frankly, to punish companies under GDPR regulations. So they'll say, hey, pay us ransom and then, hey, pay us ransom again, or we're going to leak this information proving that you have violated GDPR. So that's getting interesting. And then finally, here in the US, we've seen a 900% increase of ransomware attacks. Now, granted, if you're using effective next-gen AV, that is EDR capabilities, you'll stop 99.9% of ransomware. But if you have that one server or that one endpoint that is not more robustly secured and that is using traditional AV, you more than likely will get popped because ransomware, it's all about detecting behavioral anomalies. It's not about the payload. I'd like to talk a bit more about the organization and what's effective or what are you seeing as the most effective? Obviously, we've talked a lot here about when things go wrong or or being targeted, but from the financial services firms you're seeing you've got to be seeing some best practice or even just some better practice. So we've seen CISOs being part of IT, being part of a risk function, being something completely separate. We've seen separate run or change budgets. What do you see as the kind of the optimal model or the one that seems to be most favoured at the moment and going places? CISOs reporting to CEOs, 
themselves being part of a kind of a joint initiative for physical cybersecurity as well as risk. I think the most challenging aspect of organizational structures now is there is a shortage of human capital and cybersecurity professionals out there. So the industry finds itself poaching from other industry participants, good people. Most CISOs only stay in their roles for two to three years because of burnout, regardless of the pay, which is another significant challenge. And then specifically to the teams, if you're going to have a cyber threat hunting team, that is not just your incident response team with new clothes. <laughs> the cyber threat hunting team should have a combination of incident responders, cyber threat intelligence experts, penetration testers, people trained on specifically the utility of EDR capabilities, people who are very involved in information sharing programs with, let's say, the FSISAC, which is international, as well as the electronic crimes task forces, cyber crime task forces. I think the challenges are burnout, human capital, a lack of authority, lack of budget, et cetera, et cetera. And then for those who outsource to MDRs or MSSPs, you shouldn't do so specific to efficiencies. You should do so based on the bona fides of that MDR or MSSP as it relates to security in your industry sector. You need to ensure that they understand the attack service and the risk matrix that you would suffer from due to the nature of your business. What do you see as the common traits where people underestimate the scale and size of the challenge that they're facing with cybersecurity? Well, that's a very good point. And like I stressed earlier, the Secret Service, for the first time, put out a warning on MSPs and MSSPs who were being targeted to leapfrog into their customer environments. I don't think sufficient due diligence has been done on the MSP and MSSP community on a regular basis. These service level agreements should include numerous caveats and elements of cybersecurity and the modernization of how they effectuate services to you. There should be regular cyber threat hunting that occurs on their infrastructure too, to ensure that they're not the source of your contagion. There should be 24 by seven monitoring through a single pane of glass, which means that they have integrated their security controls and those security controls are also integrated into yours so that you don't miss anything that goes bump in the night. And last but not least, they should be able to capture unfiltered data for a period of time, given that most times cyber intrusions and events are not realized in real time. And so you need to be able to go back and review that data to ascertain where the source of the breach originated to ensure that you don't already still have a backdoor. Well, okay. And no wonder CISOs don't sleep at night. So you mentioned earlier a different approach. And is that that you see that if security is built into the application and into the infrastructure, that actually the CISOs aren't doing as many projects and they are acting increasingly as a detect response policy enforcement kind of function? Or have I got that wrong? No, no, no. We're on the same page. Look, it's all hands on deck. It's if you've watched Game of Thrones, we need more Night's Watch. <laughs> How do you create more Night's Watch? You need to militarize or give security assets and, and thoughtfulness to your sysadmins and your IT professionals. You need to break down the silos between security and IT. Security should be operationalized through IT and visibility is going to be paramount to you. So how do you leverage your IT infrastructure to better protect your applications, your data, your cloud environments? And that's what we're striving to do. That's why I am blessed to be a part of this, this marriage or this merger of VMware Carbon Black. We're trying to allow for the infrastructure to defend itself and essentially suppress intrusions in real time. What's wrong with the current architectural model 
It's bolted on. It's not built in. It's threat centric versus context centric. And more importantly, it's based on an architecture of a fortress, of a castle, perimeter defense, defense in depth, where the goal is prevention 100% of the time. That doesn't work in today's world. We need to invert the security model to go inside out. The architectural model should look a lot more like a prison than a castle. No one wants to break into a prison and it's very hard to get out of one. And getting out of one and moving freely within one are really the primary stratagems that are effective in dealing with today's threat. I love that prison analogy. <laughs> I knew you would. I do I love too. that I'm prison analogy. No, because in a very simple way, it reflects exactly the challenge. Yeah. And dare I say, I'm sure there'll be some people thinking that's already where they're working. Mm, yeah. So I've recently moved house and as part of moving house, I've dealt with all the things that you would expect me to deal with. And I'm now a home worker and I'm sure there are many people, if not everyone that's listening to this podcast has been home working and will continue to do so. I've moved into a house. I've got smart devices throughout the house. But based on what you've said, I am now the weakest link in that chain back. So give me an idea of the scale and the real urgency that people should have and are thinking about their home security now as part of that process, as well as the corporates who are equally going to be concerned about the endpoints where their resources sit. Well, congratulations on your new house, first and foremost. Now, we need to appreciate that you no longer work in an office setting. And if you don't work in the financial institution anymore, you no longer have the guards. You no longer have the alarms, the metal detectors, the elevator key fobs, the locked doorways, and the cameras, all of which protected you from miscreants and nefarious individuals in the real world. And now as you work from home, the financial institution is hard pressed to overlay the same amount of security onto your home environment as they do for you in the office. That being said, everything is a piece of the attack surface. The fabric of your digital home is now exposed. To begin by protecting you and your family and, and your bank from any nefarious individuals who would use your home infrastructure to target you or the institution, you need to start with your router. Every router has two networks on it, and one of those networks should be dedicated to only work devices. We call that digital distancing, and this is fundamental. All the other smart devices in your home and your children's devices and your spouse's devices can access the other router network but they should never have administrative rights to the network, nor should they really have administrative rights to their device. In addition, you need to hope that your institution is em empowering you to defend your laptop or your desktop with next-gen AV and, and EDR. You need to ensure that even Mac devices are protected. You need to isolate the digital experience from one room in the home as smart devices are always listening and create a digital free zone or a safe room that has no digital devices in it whatsoever outside of the bathroom, but even bathrooms now have them. You should be using Mozilla as your browser, which is much more secure. Chrome's good, but Chrome extensions can be misused. You should be updating your software on your operating system and all of your applications before you're doing anything sensitive, whether it's for work or whether it's for your own e-commerce or financial utilities. You need to be using a multi-factor authentication and a sentence, not just some password on all of your devices. You need to remember as well that if your next-gen AV triggers on something and says, we've just quarantined this or we've cleaned this, that thing has stolen all of your passwords across all of your accounts. And you need to go back and immediately change them as arduous as that sounds and seems. 
And then frankly, you shouldn't be clicking on links whatsoever or replying to anyone that requests sensitive information. And you should use out-of-band communication techniques to verify when something sensitive must be done, like picking up the phone and calling someone. I'm going to be busy for a couple of weeks. <laughs> you, you had to ask. <laughs> <laughs> I, I had to ask. And, I, and literally, it's not for the first time in this conversation I'm writing notes down. <laughs> <laughs> Add it to your list. Hey, look, Tom, tell us a bit more about yourself. You've shared with us some pretty frightening things today. What's your story? How, did, how have you got into this? My father was a U.S. Foreign Service officer. My mom is from Switzerland, and I grew up in Latin America during the dark years, the 80s. My wake-up moment for security was a home invasion that I experienced at age 10. And had we not had a panic room, a safe room, and had we not had embassy security react to the situation, I wouldn't be speaking with you now. So I became obsessed with security at that point. And about a year later, a DE agent that was trying to date my older sister, um, <laughs> who was waiting forever for her to get ready, showed me how to do DOS prompts on a computer, which led me down this rabbit hole. But I had a college professor at the University of Michigan that convinced me to apply my technical skills to international affairs. And so I actually got my master's and my subsequently my PhD in international affairs, but I wrote my thesis on the illicit transnational corporation, which was a depiction of how organized crime used technology to undermine regimes around the world. Wow. So that's how I got in. Okay. Um, I think you mentioned before about working with the US Secret Service and some of the stuff you're doing with Capitol Hill. What was that about? Yes, so because modern bank heist report was so well received in Washington, I was asked to testify in front of the House Financial Services Subcommittee on the impacts cyber attacks are taking during the pandemic against the financial sector in the U.S. and against American citizens. I laid out the risks and some of the dark stats that I've already shared with the audience today. But more importantly, I provided some recommendations. One of those recommendations was to elevate the role of CISOs within financial institutions Another recommendation is to provide tax credits to any company that invests more than 10% of their IT budgets in cybersecurity, as well as they conduct cyber threat hunting exercises. Another one was to go after the money, follow the money associated with the dark web. Given that the dark web economy of scale is now the soon to be the third largest economy in the world, how do you modernize forfeiture and any money laundering laws to go after uh, virtual currencies or alternative payment systems that are used in cybercrime conspiracies and then use those monies to fund critical infrastructure protection internationally for the matter? And, and others, frankly, some of these bits are being written into legislation as we speak, but they were listening in a very uh, non-normal <laughs> bipartisan fashion. I think this is the one of one of maybe two issues in the United States of America now, which has bipartisan support. Well done. Well done. Thank you. Tom, um, you, you mentioned the, the Cyber Heist Report, which is actually great reading and super, super relevant. And you also mentioned earlier the World Economic Forum Report. Is there anything else that we can add to our show notes to help people better understand some of these areas or do some background reading? Definitely. We just released VMware Carbon Black, that is our global threat report, which surveyed over 3,000 CXOs and CIOs discussing how they're dealing with digital transformation during this era of COVID, as well as what challenges they are facing, both from a technological migration perspective, as well as security. I find it enlightening and quite troubling, but it provides true ground truth to the state of the world. So I think we've we've talked a lot about the negative side and we've talked a lot about the potential when things go wrong. 
Just to try and turn that around then, is what does success look like? How do we need to change? No, this is this is fundamental. This is not negative, what I'm describing. This is a massive opportunity for strategic action. You can use cybersecurity or sustainable digital transformation as a differentiator, as a competitive differentiator between you and other financial institutions if you get it right, if you built it in, if you make it context-centric, if you make it intrinsic. You will suffer less losses and, and less damage to your brand when the inevitable hopefully does not happen. In addition, soon, I think, consumers and investors are going to begin to look at financial institutions through the traditional formative mission statement of financial institutions, which was trust and confidence in the safety and soundness of your assets. It's no longer going to be about, oh, just merely the interest rate I receive. Or look at this new bell and whistle I can deploy to access my financial services or to invest in certain things. I think the novelty of that will go away and people will just want to be assured that A, that their assets are safe and sound and B, that the institution is seeing security as their number one priority and then C, they should never feel threatened by the digital infrastructure of their institution. Wow. Thank you, Tom. There's um, so much we've learned today. What's the best way for people to get in touch with you or to be able to take this further? For me personally, I post a lot of relevant cybersecurity information on my Twitter account. So T.A. Kellerman, double N. Otherwise, you just follow the, the Howlers underscore Howlers Twitter account, which is a group cabal of sorts of cybersecurity experts that work within VMware Carbon Black that regularly post non-marketing, non-sales, threat-specific information that could be very useful to most folks. And then if you're not already a member of the Cyber Fraud Task Forces of the Secret Service, which do exist in Europe, by the way, they exist in London, in Estonia, and in Italy right now, uh, you should join up because the information sharing across the pond will be paramount moving forward to, to deal with the miscreants in the mist. Fantastic. Thank you. As always on these podcasts, it's been enlightening and it's been really educational in terms of the scale and complexity and challenges that, uh, that we face within the financial services industry. I myself am off to look at my router. <laughs> It's all right. I've been looking at it for you. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, Matthew. Brian, do you want me to ring your doorbell? <laughs> Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you. If we can help you in any way, please talk with your VMware account team. Alternatively, you can connect with us through LinkedIn. Just search for Brian Hayes or Matthew O'Neill at VMware. Or you can follow me on Twitter at Matthew Owen. And you can find our show notes at don'tbreakthebankpodcast.com. Thank you for listening. We hope you can join us again next time. Please do take care of yourself. Thank you for listening to the CIO Exchange podcast. For more conversations with technology leaders from around the world, consider subscribing to this podcast. And to get video perspectives and deep research, visit vmware.com slash CIO.